You then have to be relentless for yourself, relentless in love, relentless in compassion, relentless in self-belief. And when you can't muster that up yourself, you need to find people who will come alongside you and fill that space for you. This is Running For Real, the podcast for runners who know that for every runner's high, there are just as many lows. All those just missed PRs, easy runs that feel hard, injury blues, and more. Each week, we'll talk to running, health, and wellness experts about their highs, lows, and best advice to build our confidence. Running For Real is about being honest, being brave, and most of all, not feeling alone. And now here's our host, who wants to attend a Tony Robbins event. Tina Muir. Hello, my friends. Welcome to episode 114 of the Running Field podcast. I am really excited that you are here. Thank you so much for joining me. And if this is your first episode, welcome. I am happy to have you. Last week, we had my sports psychologist, Evie Saventi, on the show, and she answered the last of your questions on that special episode. Now, I love offering you the opportunity to ask what you want to know, because although I try my best to think about what you could be wondering while the interview is going on, I'm never going to be able to get into your head. Well, you know, unless something happens like that film, what's it called? What Women Want, unless that came to life. But anyway, if you missed that episode, be sure to go back and subscribe and go take a listen to that one. Okay, so today, this one's honestly a little bit nerve-wracking for me, not because the topic is something I shouldn't be sharing about, but because I know it's incredibly sensitive and the last thing I would ever want to do is make someone feel worse or fall deeper into struggles. Now today we're talking about eating disorders and as you know I've tried to cover this topic a lot in the past trying to get you and I good advice from some of the incredible registered dietitians we've had on here who have fantastic advice And actually part of the reason that I realized I was suffering from disordered eating and, you know, did what I needed to do to get over it and worked with one of the dietitians I've featured in the past who was the game changer for me. But I've also had comments from you that although their advice is helpful, they aren't in it and they haven't been in it. So you can never really get it or understand it like you would if you were someone who had. So I thought long and hard about how to approach this and one person kept coming back into my mind. She inspires me and she's really authentic, absolutely perfect for running for real. Sarah Canny struggled with anorexia and bulimia for many years before she began her recovery journey. And it's now been, I think, about 10 years since she's been in recovery and she's able to talk about this without kind of risking heading back down that path. I wanted to bring Sarah on because she can clearly articulate the feelings she experienced, but without bringing any judgment because she has come out the other side. Sarah is a mother of three, businesswoman, and absolutely wonderful human being. I really hope you appreciate this episode. It might be informative, maybe even if you have someone in your life who you think might be struggling with this, and maybe you might even recognize things in yourself that you haven't considered before. Now, I do want to give one more warning that this episode might be triggering. So please think carefully before you go on. If you are working with someone right now who has told you to do what is best for your recovery, it might be best to have them listen or check it out before they let you listen to it. So let's go meet the wonderful Sarah Canny after we give a quick thanks to our friends at Generation UCAN and Aftershocks. Thank you to our friends at Generation UCAN for sponsoring this episode of the Running For Real podcast. You can get 15% off at generationucan.com when you use code Tina Muir. Go get yourself some, especially the peanut butter bars. They are the best. Go get some. 
This episode is sponsored by Aftershocks, the award-winning headphone brand, best known for its open-ear listening experience, powered by patented best-in-class bone conduction technology. Aftershocks headphones sit outside your ear so you can hear your music and your surroundings. I know. Aftershocks is a must-have for runners, providing the ultimate level of safety and comfort without compromising sound quality. To learn more and save $50 on Aftershocks endurance bundles, visit tina.aftershocks.com. That's T-I-N-A dot A-F-T-E-R-S-H-O-K-Z dot com. Sarah, my friend, I am so excited to have you on the Running For Real podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today and just, you know, being open to talking about a conversation which we've kind of got into a little bit, but this is one I've really been kind of wanting to do. And thank you for being the person who I feel is the right person for it and just the person who I think people are going to love and respect and appreciate so much. So thank you for being here. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me, Tina. I'm just really honored that you asked me and thought of me. And um, it's just a real pleasure to be here. Oh, no, this is this is going to be great. And I always love talking to you, um, as you know. And, um, you know, we've we've met once in person, you know, kept in touch over the years. But I would love for everyone who doesn't know you to kind of get to know you a little bit. I personally, as I mentioned, have like looked up to you for many years with your attitude, for your attitude, for the way that you raise your kids, just the kind of what appears to be, but I'm sure we're going to get to uh, in the episode, the balance you seem to have with with getting everything in the right priorities in the right order, I suppose, but at the same time being raw with us. Um, so I would love for you to kind of firstly talk about motherhood. So you have three beautiful children. And from what I saw of you, I noticed that you seem to kind of step back to really be the best mother you could. You homeschooled your children. You kind of put your running goals, put your life goals, a lot of them on the back burner, but still managed to do some things. So how did you manage for women listening who are kind of desperate? They maybe just had a baby and they're thinking, I just want to get back out there. I want to run. I want to do this. I want to do that. What would be your advice with that? Yeah, well, you first of all, you paint a very idyllic picture. <laughs> and I don't know that it's that ideal all the time. I, I like to think of it not so much as a balance, but an ebb and flow. You know, sometimes my my running and personal goals are a higher priority. And then, you know, sometimes I'm all in just focused on my family. So I feel like things kind of ebb and flow mm -hmm. more so than like a even balance across. But I think what I would say to women who are maybe new moms and trying to get back into running is to give yourself grace. I think I've been at both extremes. So I've I have three kids and obviously three pregnancies and all were, you know, in terms of pregnancy, labor and delivery, pretty easy, pretty standard. But my approach kind of to life and running through each of those pregnancies was, was all very different. And so um, my first pregnancy and first time postpartum with my daughter, I was just starting to run again. Um, I had taken, I'd sort of been never a runner like in college or high school, but had found running in, in college and kind of continued that post college just recreationally, mm -hmm. um, but took a quite a big break and didn't run for a long time. And it was after my daughter that I started to get back into it. So it was a very gradual introduction to running. And then with my son, um, I, 
my oldest son, who's our middle child, I had been back into running for two years, was starting to get competitive in my age group and was just, it was also the same time when I sort of joined social media. So Mm -hmm. I was on Instagram and Twitter and all these other pregnant runners were doing crazy things and running races and all this stuff. And I thought, well, that's what I should do too. And um, so I was kind of influenced by what I was seeing on social media and really kind of pushed myself a little too far. I also was kind of afraid of losing the ground that I'd gained. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, you know, I'd returned to running after a long break. I'd, you know, gained fitness. I'd kind of progressed and I was really afraid of losing that progress. And so with my middle pregnancy and postpartum, I was just very regimented and had kind of unrealistic goals. I ignored how my body was feeling. Um, and so I really pushed myself a little bit too, um, too much and kind of suffered the consequences, ended up with a, um, slight prolapse postpartum, um, went through, um, quite a bit of pelvic floor, uh, physical therapy rehab to kind of get back to a place where I could run. Um, and so my approach with my third pregnancy obviously was kind of the response Mm -hmm. to that extreme. Mm -hmm. So I was under the guidance of that. Uh, of the women's health PT that I had worked with. So she kind of oversaw all of my pregnancy and my running during pregnancy for that third one. And then she, obviously I went to her postpartum as well. And I was just so much more gracious with myself. So, so many less or lower expectations Mm -hmm. and just kind of approached running as, as for enjoyment and just movement rather than out of fear, either fear of losing fitness or fear of like not keeping up with what everyone else is doing. Which is definitely something we all can be a bit guilty of, but especially that's kind of what I wanted to address. And I, I knew you had different kind of approaches with each of the pregnancies and I'm glad to hear you say that. And, you know, you've kind of shown that you've learned from your body over time and, and you found a balance kind of by the end. And, and speaking of that, you know, um, I mentioned earlier that you, you know, seemed like you really kind of put your kids first, especially in those early years, but you also had goals and things you wanted to do. It didn't seem at the beginning so much like it was running. You were still running and racing, but the last year or so, it seems like you've really kind of come into where you're really going aggressively after some big goals, but you did, you know, set up a retreat, Rives Run Retreat, which is my first and only retreat I've ever been to. And I loved it. And you know, that's a pretty big undertaking for someone who has, you know, three young kids and um, is trying to, you know, homeschool them, be there for them. So, you know, what would be your advice for someone in finding something that brings them joy, makes them feel confident, makes them actually feel like they're working towards something without kind of feeling just so guilty about either leaving your children with, you know, a partner or, maybe that you're just not being a good parent at all. How did you kind of find that balance with picking something that meant something to you? Yeah, I think I definitely think it's it's hard to let go of that mom guilt. And I mean, even like even this morning, like I was kind of thinking about the phone calls that I had lined up today and my schedule for the day and feeling a little bit guilty that I was going to take that time away from my kids. So I think the biggest thing is like you said, finding something that sparks, sparks joy comes to mind because everything is like Marie Kondo right now, but, (laughs) um, 
you know, finding something that that checks all the boxes for you. I think for me, you know, obviously I love running, but kind of second to running, I love connecting with people. I love hearing people's stories. Um, and then I also love kind of being the people who connects people, you know, be, you know, kind of introducing people to each other and saying, oh, you've got this thing in common. You guys should yes. talk. Yes. So I just really enjoy that. And so the retreat was kind of a natural progression of, okay, I love to run. I love meeting new people and I love connecting people. And then I think really my husband is incredibly supportive. And so anytime I feel doubt or feel like that mom guilt, a lot of times we talk through it and he's incredibly supportive. Mm -hmm. But even if you, you don't necessarily have that supportive partner in your life, I think just going back to, to what's in your heart and just following, you know, following that you know, and, and sometimes that means weeding out the things that, and saying no to things that are good, but that maybe don't bring you as much joy. Yeah. It's just that not the right time to be able to, to do all of them kind of have to pick and choose which ones mean the most. Yeah, okay, for sure. Great. Thank you. And then one more thing just about you. Um, I want to talk about, you know, this year, 2019 for a minute. So I would love for you to kind of share about your experience at the National Snowshoe Championships because, um, you know, you'd had an amazing year, 2018, represented the US in the World Snowshoe Championships. You know, I mentioned earlier, you've worked really hard in in your running, uh, you know, in the world of snowshoeing. And I think the story of kind of what happened will resonate with a lot of people. So before we get on to our main topic, I really want to hear you kind of explain what happened that day. Yeah, so the Snowshoe National Championships were in Cable, Wisconsin this year, um, it, last month, and uh, well, they were in March. And in 2018, I finished third at the National Championships, and that was a real breakthrough race for me. And went into the National Championships, you know, obviously hoping to do as well or better than I had done the previous year, but also knowing that I was traveling to a different area. The Snowshoe National Championships in 2018 were in Vermont. So that's mm. local to me. It was local competition who I knew with a few people coming in from out of town um, and from across the country. But going out to Cable, Wisconsin, I really didn't know what the competition was going to be like. And it ended up being really stiff and uh, there were some really talented women there. And so on Saturday was the 10K which is distance, which is the national qualifying team race. That's the 10K is the distance and um, competed in that race and ended up finishing eighth. So the first five, first five spots are the Team USA. Um, so I fell short. And even though, I mean, I, it was a sprint finish, I was totally gassed and it was a sprint finish to hang on to eighth. I mean, I literally gave everything that I had in that race. And the next day on Sunday, there's the half marathon distance. And so kind of after having a disappointing race on Saturday, I decided I was going to go out and race the half marathon. And um, because I had gone to Wisconsin with the intention of standing on a podium. So my sort of mantra to myself is like, I came here to do a job and I'm going to get it done. Mm -hmm. So I went into Sunday's race, the half marathon, which was 
I mean, it was snowing there. A snowstorm had come in on Saturday night. So it was snowing. We had to do five laps, five, three mile laps, or just shy of three mile laps of this course that we had done two laps on the previous day. There's fresh snow, which obviously makes it so much harder because it's powdery, it's slippery, and it's deep. And it's just so much more energy expenditure when the snow is fresh. And so I was able to come back and really had to dig deep after two laps. I really wanted to quit, but I ended up digging deep and finishing third in the half marathon. So I've just felt really proud of that, yeah. that effort of turning it around and, and actually getting on the podium that day. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I love that you were able to kind of take, you know, what happened the first day. I mean, this is a pretty much a perfect example of, you know, we talk about visualizing and you're supposed to visualize kind of, uh, you know, what you would like to happen, but you're also supposed to visualize things going wrong. And you, you know, didn't allow this thing that had gone wrong, this thing that you never, it's kind of a bit like Siri Lindley when she's talked about, you know, when uh, she visualized for the um, world championships, the trials or something, and then it didn't go her way, but she was so caught off guard by it not going her way that she just let it completely destroy her. Whereas you took it and said, you know what, I'm, I can find a way I'll find a way. And you did it. And I I just love that. And I really wanted everyone to hear that because it's just such a cool thing. So well done to you. And I'm excited to, when are the championships? So the world championships are um, next February and they're going to be in Japan. Oh, wow. That's amazing. I don't know the exact location and I probably couldn't pronounce it if I did, but (laughs) it's going to be at the base of Mount Fuji. So, well, we will be cheering for you. That's exciting. Yeah. Thank you. How cool. All right. So I want to get into this topic today. Now, you know this and a few other people who have kind of spoken to me about this know this, that I've been thinking about this topic for a while. You know, I've had a lot of dietitians on the show trying to kind of um, clear up this as much as I can, get the information in the correct place, get the kind of, I guess, steps to kind of getting yourself um, into a good place. But you know, it's one thing having experts on to talk about what you should be doing, but it's a totally other other thing when you're actually in it and you feel like a lot of the time experts are kind of looking down at you from their, you know, pedestal. And I'm not saying any of the experts I had are that way, not at all, but I've definitely had that feedback from other people that it can be difficult when you know they, they haven't been through it themselves. And, you know, I've admitted that I've had disordered eating, but I wouldn't say I went as far as um, having been that far into it as some of my listeners or as you will explain what you were before. So I wanted to bring you on and for someone listening who feels like they are coming to terms with the fact that they think they might have an eating disorder, disordered eating, something that's not quite right with their relationship with food, but they feel like they're all alone. They feel like no one understands. Um, Everyone is just kind of judging them and maybe making kind of snide remarks at them, what would you like to say to those people to kind of start off? Yeah. I mean, I mean, first of all, I think to have the self-awareness that you could potentially be struggling with an eating disorder is just the first step, I think, in recovery and in being free. So I think that would be, you know, fantastic. But if people are doubting your story or doubting whatever your inclination is, I think that you need to keep 
keep talking, keep remaining open and vulnerable Mm -hmm. until you find someone who is going to be supportive and who is going to listen. I mean, it's hard for me to speak to that because that wasn't necessarily my experience. I never came up against, um, you know, people who doubted me. But I think that if your intuition and inclination is that, yeah, I think I might have an eating disorder, then continue to ask for help until you find somebody who is willing to help you and willing to listen to your story. Okay. All right. No, that's great. Thank you for explaining that. And, um, you know, I, I've mentioned that you were the only person, you know, I wanted to bring on for this uh, because of how much I've, you know, got to know you, got to understand you and your story. And I know it better than probably anyone else's who I've kind of known with this, um, who's kind of come out the other side. So for those listening, you know, um, the kind of thoughts that were going on in your head, um, during the time that you were kind of dealing with it the most, um, would you kind of tell the listeners maybe for someone who doesn't really know whether this is them or this is not, or maybe someone who has a loved one, what were some of the narratives that you were kind of saying to yourself when you were deep in this? Yeah. So they were kind of different because, um, so originally I was diagnosed with anorexia and then that diagnosis led to outpatient treatment for that. And then once I started to gain weight, people kind of thought that I was fixed. And so, um, I lost a lot of the, the support that I was seeking and also some family and friends just kind of stopped asking and stopped kind of checking in on me. And of course, when you have an eating disorder, it thrives in secrecy and in darkness and in shadow. And so after the anorexia, I started to struggle with bulimia. And so the bulimia lasted for about nine years where I struggled with that. And Can I just pause you, was that immediately like one followed the next or did you have like a period in the middle where it was kind of maybe everything seemed to be okay. Yeah. They followed in pretty rapid succession, I would say, because once, once I was diagnosed and entered the outpatient and sort of finally gave myself permission to eat, then the, the purging behavior started. And then, then it slowly morphed into intentional binges, intentional purging, that kind of thing. So, but I think in terms of just the thoughts, the disordered thinking that was going on. I mean, it honestly really started probably when I was 10, 11, 12. You know, I was made fun of as a kid for being overweight, um, being heavy. And sort of as I entered um, like middle school, high school, just became very aware that the way that I was was not good enough. And so the underlying narrative to sort of everything was that I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. Um, and so that manifested itself in, in thinking that, well, if I lose weight, then I'll have more friends. More people will talk to me at school. I will, um, be popular or whatever it was that, you know, my high school brain thought, (laughs) um, was the solution. And then as I transitioned from, high school to college, it was more like, well, I'm going to leave that person behind and I'm going to reinvent myself. And just, I think the probably most destructive 
thinking was kind of done in front of a mirror and just mm-hmm. pointing things out about myself that I felt were not enough. And then sort of berating myself for the way that I looked sometimes out loud, sometimes just with my thoughts. And so I think it was those, you know, after you plant a seed of those really negative thoughts for a long time, you start to believe them and start to act on them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's when sort of the really restrictive behavior started. But, you know, it was like pointing to air, you know, looking in the mirror at specific areas of my body and thinking, well, that's not very attractive or that doesn't look very good or I don't like this about myself. And I think that an eating disorder really starts with and thrives because you feed into and allow those thoughts to progress, to become rooted and established and then progress. And so it was really sort of a self-loathing and sort of disgust with myself because then those thoughts sort of become the motivation for the behavior. So when you're feeling like, you know, like for, for me, when I was in that sort of anorexic phase, you know, when I was feeling hungry and was trying to restrict, trying to have this, you know, quote unquote, self-control to not eat those thoughts that I had uttered to myself in front of the mirror would come back in, you know, and I would, those would kind of be the motivator for mm. not eating or, um, or, per, and then later on, those would be the motivating thoughts to, to purge. So if you think, I mean, I would imagine that most of the people listening are athletes, they're runners. So you think about the motivating thoughts that you have that get you out the door in the morning, like, oh, I'm training for this race, or I'm, you know, trying to get better at this, or, you know, whatever motivating thoughts are there to help you in your healthy behaviors, there's also sort of negative motivating thoughts Mm -hmm. that will spur on destructive behavior. And so I was putting all of my mental energy into feeding the negative motivating thoughts. And so the behavior got worse and worse and more destructive. And, uh, and so I think really that those thought patterns are really where it all starts. Mm -hmm. Everyone sees the behavior and everyone tries to address the behavior and modify the behavior. But, but the real issue is the way that you think about yourself Mm -hmm. and then ultimately what you believe about yourself. And is it, you know, just a case of, you mentioned, you know, some people making a comment, um, around, you know, uh, 11, 10, 11, 12, whatever age it was, you said exactly that kind of made you think, okay, well, they're calling me overweight, but they don't call this girl over there overweight. So if I look like her, was it kind of media, like looking at, um, you know, celebrities and saying, oh, look how pretty and popular and, you know, rich and famous they are, or was it, you know, I'm just trying to, for me, understand and I know for other people who maybe have family and friends are trying to understand, like, how does the the food restriction or, or losing weight come into it? Is it the compliments you get? Like, what are some of the things that kind of make it be channeled into, into that kind of area? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of everything. So I think probably it started with being made fun of and sort of the realization that I was, you know, other, you know, I didn't match 
what I was, you know, saw in other girls, Mm -hmm. I was, you know, different in not a good way. And then, you know, I can remember as I don't know, a seventh, eighth grader checking 17 magazine out of the library because my mom would not let us get a subscription, (laughs) but I would check it out of the library, you know, and those pages were filled with, you know, thin, attractive, I don't know if they photoshopped back then, probably not, (laughs) but like thin, attractive girls that I just didn't feel, you know, that's what I want, you know, I wanted to look like that because look at how happy they are, you know, and then And then I think too, like as sort of through high school, I started to lose weight, the compliments started coming. I remember specifically the summer between my freshman year and my sophomore year, I dropped weight and coming back to classes my sophomore year, I had so many compliments, so many people noticed all that positive affirmation, of course, reinforces whatever, you know, behavior I was engaged with. So I think it's like a, it's just a combination of all of those things. Okay. And then for you, tell us about the point you realized where you had to make a change for good. Cause you know, we're going to go into how this can kind of, you know, you, all the friends and family in the world can support you, but at the end of the day, you have to decide. So what made it change for you? Yeah. So the kind of the pivotal moment of realizing of going from like the behavior to then like the self-realization that, okay, I think I have a problem. Um, that happened my freshman year of college. So originally I went to school for nutritional science, big surprise there. Which is quite common, right? Yes, quite common. So my goal was to become a registered dietitian. I was enrolled at Syracuse university in their nutritional science program And it got to be about, I think it was uh, Christmas break. So sometime in December, um, I went home. I had dropped quite a bit of weight over that that fall semester. I was using all of the information that I was learning in my classes to further restrict my diet and just really control everything and kind of brought it down to a science, really. I went home for Christmas break and I can remember I took the bus from Syracuse to Boston. um, And I remember being on the bus, I had on two sweaters, like a t-shirt, two sweaters and a big North face jacket. And I was sitting there shaking because I was so cold because I had dropped so much weight that my body couldn't maintain its proper temperature. So I was always cold. You know, I had grown that, that thin layer of hair all over my face. Um, And I could not sleep at night and my hair was falling out. So there were a lot of signs uh, and we had just done, uh, I think it was in my nutrition 101 class, the last segment before going home on break was about eating disorders, you know, and as I, we were going over in class and going down the list of all the symptoms, I was checking all the boxes and just, I think that's when I was like, oh, okay, this is why I can't sleep. This is why my hair's falling out. This is why I'm miserable just in inside and out, like physically miserable, but also just emotionally, mentally, just miserable. And I remember going home and on Christmas Eve, we were about to head to the Christmas Eve service at my parents' church. And I was just in tears and I couldn't really explain why. And my mom came in and she said, what's wrong? And, you know, and I just said, like, I think I have an eating disorder. And so that was kind of the pivotal moment where 
I was like, okay, so I'm miserable. I don't like this life. Also, I don't want to die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't think this is the way life should be. And so that was really the, the pivotal moment. And then, I mean, thankfully I have a relationship with my parents and, you know, had close friends who I felt like I could be open with. I'm also have always sort of been like, you know, obviously except for like the secrecy part of the eating disorder, I'm always kind of like a blah, like put everything out there kind of person. So I love about you, um, Sarah. (laughs) I don't really have a, a filter. So as much as like, I, there was part of me, obviously, that like, obviously didn't want to change because all these habits and ways of thinking had become very ingrained. Um, There was part of me that was also like, I just didn't see the way forward. Like, how can I continue on this path and continue to live? Like, I can't, I can't see that life. Like it either ends or I change. But did you also kind of see, I can't see how I'll ever be happy gaining weight. Did you ever kind of think that as well? You know, I think in that moment, that wasn't necessarily my thought. But then obviously, like once I entered treatment, the internal struggle became more violent, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. because then it was like the the part of me that wanted to control everything, the part of me that didn't want to gain weight, that wanted to see the same size sort of became really like angry. Mm-hmm. And then the part of me that was like, no, but I want to get better was so it was like this internal battle between those two those two voices absolutely now you have said and I do agree that complete recovery is possible now firstly I want to hear you say why but also maybe in that if you weren't originally going to say it I want you to explain that although you believe complete recovery is possible it doesn't mean that that day you decided that and then it was you know two months later, you were fine. So tell us kind of about why you believe that's possible, but it may not be quite what it sounds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think, you know, initially when I made that confession to my mom, I just firmly believed that I was not born for this life. Like I was not born for an eating disordered life. Like that was not my destiny. And so I just kind of always held this belief, like I'm made for more, like I'm made for more than this. And so I think that's sort of where the belief in complete recovery came out of was this idea that like I was made for more. And in terms of like why I believe complete recovery is possible, I mean, I did have, I can remember sitting down, I think it was with with the first therapist or the second therapist that I saw um, sitting down with them and them making a statement and several other doctors making a statement that, you know, well, this is something that you'll always struggle with. And just feeling like there was something inside me that said, oh, hell no. (laughs) And maybe that, you know, part of that is my personality is like Mm -hmm. when someone says no, I'm like, oh, watch me. (laughs) But so, but I think like now that looking back on it, I, I think that that belief was what kept me going for nine years because so the anorexia, like recovery and out, you know, all that outpatient treatment, all that professional help that I received, that was like year one and two of my total struggle with an eating disorder, which lasted for nine years. So, so I was in active, you know, quote unquote, active recovery for nine years trying to recover. 
and, but just always, you know, still struggling. Um, and so I think that belief was what sort of carried me through, you know, those nine years. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I want to get on to a bit more uh, about that specifically in just a minute, but for someone listening who, you know, you mentioned nine years there, maybe it's been longer or maybe it's been nine years of before they even begin the recovery process. You know, uh, you said about a belief, but what are some things you would like to tell people listening to maybe get it through that they, they can too have this belief in themselves. They can too get over it. What would you say to, to help them finally make it go through if it's been really ingrained in them for, for many years? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the thing that comes to mind is you just have to be relentless for yourself. I think, you know, obviously the, the, the negative thoughts and sort of the disordered addictive aspect of an eating disorder is relentless. Like it's, it's really destructive and relentless and it's, um, in the way that it's destructive. And so I think that you then have to be relentless for yourself, relentless in love, relentless in compassion, relentless in self-belief. And, you know, when you can't muster that up yourself, you need to find people who will come alongside you and sort of fill that, that space for you. What about someone who says, well, I can't be relentless for myself, but you know, I've got, I've got my friends and family or I've got, um, you know, my partner that they're relentless for me. So, you know, is that enough? Mm, I don't think so. I think you really do have to, you know, there, there were definitely seasons where I felt really strongly and worked really hard in the recovery. And then there were seasons where I just felt emotionally and physically exhausted. But I think that, yes, you do, like you, you do have to rely on the help of others, but then also like you can never lose that belief, that self-belief and that hope. Um, and you just have to, to do anything possible to foster that. So I always think of it as like a little flickering spark that you have to fan into a flame, into a raging fire. So obviously when I started my recovery journey, my belief in myself was like smaller than a match, you know, and over the course of my recovery journey that grew and grew and grew until now I feel like, you know, my belief in myself, like might border on <laughs> narcissistic. I don't know, like not, but like, I believe so strongly in myself now that the woman who that I was, you know, 12, 15, 15 years ago, like she would not even recognize who I am now. Well, and one thing I want to say, just, this is the perfect time to say that for anyone listening, like if you do need an example of someone who is going to rise you up, who is going to be just so relentlessly themselves, so authentic, so genuine, and just have that kind of confidence that makes you feel confident in yourself just by like their presence and just by watching them, Sarah is that person. So if you don't already follow Sarah, go do that because she, you know, she will continue to tell you more advice in this episode, but just going beyond this, you are going to have some hard moments seeing Sarah, maybe having her be your kind of role model to, to what is possible. I just wanted to mention that as this is a, a good time to do that. And Sarah, is there any words you would say, maybe someone can keep in mind almost essentially like a mantra on those really hard moments. Was there anything you told yourself? You know, I, it's funny because I, I think, you know, so much of my, like my mindset during recovery, I think was just 
influenced by my physical struggle. Mm -hmm. And so honestly, like I have a hard time remembering some of the things that took place during that time. And I think it's more just because my mind was so preoccupied with the disordered thinking that there are some like details of like things that my husband and I did that I like, I don't really remember. And so I don't know that there was a specific mantra that I latched onto during that time. I mean, I'm all about mantras now, but there isn't one that I can recall. Okay. That's okay. And you mentioned there that it, you know, it has to be you, you have to be the one to make this decision. You have to be the one to believe in yourself. But on the other side of things, how important are professionals? Can you do it totally alone saying I've got, you know, I've got my family and friends to support me. I really want this. You know, I, I don't want to pay, you know, a hundred dollars an hour to see a, a dietitian or a therapist. Like I I'm going to do this myself. What would you say? Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that that's a lie. (laughs) You can't do it yourself. You do need professional help. And I think that was, uh, you know, it was pivotal. And my journey was, was finding a professional who I worked well with and who kind of spoke to me on the, where I was at. So I went through probably four or five different therapists before I found somebody who I actually felt like, okay, we're moving forward here. How many, how many, how long would you give each one before you kind of tried? I think it was like, I don't know. It was a few years with each person. And so, yeah, a few years with each person. And then, you know, when I finally got to that final person, just really felt like it, it was working and we were doing the work that I needed to do. Okay. Yeah. But I think that, yeah, I think finding a professional is, is really essential. And then also just finding a professional who, who believes like you believe, you know, as I mentioned before there, you know, there were a couple of people who had didn't really believe that full recovery was possible. So finding that professional who did believe that full recovery is possible and would help me work towards that, I think was really, really important. Okay, great. Thank you. And then just going a bit deeper into that, what about someone who thinks, okay, well, I work with professionals, maybe I went into a treatment center, it worked for a little while, it helped me for a bit, I really, you know, I came out feeling good and, you know, I'd got myself into a better place, but then I just slipped right back into it again. What would be, what would you say to those people? Yeah, I mean, there were definitely times when I relapsed after like a good stretch Mm-hmm. And it was probably one of the most defeating and discouraging things ever. And I think that, I mean, in those instances, taking a step back and seeing your journey as a whole, yes. seeing the trajectory of your entire journey and not just focusing in on the relapse, because obviously shame is such a huge piece in eating disorders and eating disorder recovery that if you let yourself go down that dark hole of, of shame about the relapse, then it takes you kind of further backwards. So I think taking a step back, looking at the, you know, the overarching path that you've been on and being able to see, well, okay, that's where I was. Mm -hmm. That's where I got to. Okay. Yeah. I slipped back, but you know, keep showing up, keep being persistent. You know, if I keep moving forward and keep taking a step forward, then I'm going to continue on this, on this journey. And I think that, I mean, that goes for, for everything. I think a lot of times when we experience failure in whatever we're doing, we think, 
oh, well, I'm on the wrong path or I'm doing it wrong or there's something wrong with me. But I think we have to recognize failure as part of the process. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously, if we're always sort of trying to progress, trying to move forward, there's always going to be failure. There's always going to be backtracking, but just focusing on the journey as a whole rather than honing in on the mistake or the failure. Sounds very similar to something that we might say for something else that we uh, that people listening to will yeah. uh, will be resonating with. Very similar to a running journey, right? <laughs> yes, very similar. Yeah. Um, okay. What about the people you surround yourself with? How important is it to be surrounded by you know um, people who are not only supportive, but what about you know maybe if you had made some friends in a treatment center or you were around someone who was trying to lose weight, you know, is that dangerous? How, how important is it to kind of put yourself around particular people during this time? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it depends obviously on the person, but my personal experience with group therapy was that it was not helpful. I just found that when I was in group therapy, it, it was so easy to fall into the comparison trap and then also just, I felt like it dampened the flame of self-belief mm-hmm. because it was really discouraging to see people who had been in recovery longer than I had and were still where I was at or pos- potentially a worse place. So in that sense, it sort of hurt my sense of hope. And so for me, it was surrounding myself with people who were going to keep me accountable. And honestly, like I look back at the people who were sort of mentors and who kept me accountable during that time. And they are saints. Like they dealt with some really crappy behavior from me on my part. And they were persistent with me in loving and supporting me. And that goes for friends and family. Mm -hmm. But I think, yeah, just surrounding yourself with, with people who are positive, have a strong sense of self, um, and who will love you unconditionally and not put up with your BS. (laughs) Yeah, nope, that makes sense. And I think that's something sometimes we all need to hear, right? That we need someone around us who doesn't let us get away with things that, uh, you know, maybe aren't the right thing to be doing. And what about social media? Uh, I mean, as you were kind of going through this, uh, you probably weren't at the height of social media like we are now. So, based on what you see, is it better to just totally disconnect? Do you need to just be very careful who you follow or what, what what are your takes on um, social media? Yeah. I mean, I, it was, I mean, it makes me feel old, but yeah, I was, I was my pre-social media, so I didn't have to deal with that, which I think adds a whole Mm. new level of difficulty if you are currently in recovery or if you think you um, have an eating disorder, I think that social media can really feed into that. And so I, I like to think that I have like a few rules for social media, you know, and one is that I follow the joy. So I follow feeds and people who are putting joy out there and positivity. And if it leads me to a place where I'm starting to compare myself or when I look at a picture or a caption makes me feel less than, or like I'm not enough. If I see that as a pattern, then I'll stop following. Mm -hmm. I'll stop following an account because of that. So I think just, yeah, just making sure that you follow the things that lift you up 
you know, and if it means taking a break or getting rid of it for a time, then I think that's, that can be a healthy way to deal with it. Okay, great. Thank you for explaining that. All right. Uh, what about for loved ones listening? What would be your advice for someone who maybe has a partner or a sister or brother, you know, cause this obviously isn't just for females, this is males too, but some, just someone mm-hmm. they care about, uh, what would be the best thing you would tell them? Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing is, um, go see a professional yourself. So find a professional who specializes in an eating disorder and go and have an appointment with a therapist and just talk about your concern, talk about your, how to handle it, how to deal with it. Um, because a lot of times the person who is struggling with the eating disorder, they don't need your concern. Mm -hmm. They need your love. They need your unconditional love and support. And so I think if you have an outlet for your concern, Um, and for your worry and your anxiety for the person with an eating disorder, then you can give the person who has the eating disorder acceptance and love and Mm -hmm. support. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Thank you. And then I think this kind of is answered by your first, the first thing you said with risk, but what about someone, a loved one who feels they're just exhausted with kind of going through the same cycle, like over and over? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, at that point, definitely see a professional And, you know, I think I've talked to my husband extensively about this because he was, we were just started dating when I was diagnosed. And so he's been with me Mm -hmm. either as a boyfriend, fiance or husband through the whole um, entire process. And I am absolutely positive. I mean, he's even said this, that he was just exhausted, you know, exhausted. He tried unconditional love and support. He tried tough love. He tried not talking about it. He tried, he tried everything in the book. And, um, I think that if you are exhausted, um, recognizing that it's not your job to save them as much as you want to, um, you cannot put that responsibility on yourself Mm -hmm. because it will drive you crazy. Yeah. And so, yeah, I definitely think if there's that that exhaustion and just sort of at your wits end type feeling, then seeking the help of a professional is, is the primary best option. Thank you. And then just to kind of wrap this up, you know, you now, um, you know, how have you, you know, you mentioned it's, you went through it for nine years and you feel like you have got to complete recovery, but how were you able to kind of keep peace with yourself, particularly during pregnancies and postpartum where your body just kind of changes rapidly and and constantly? You know, you mentioned that you wanted to get to the point where you weren't working through it every day. Do you feel like you've got there and how did you do that? Yeah, I mean, I think part of that is sort of claiming complete recovery is an important yeah piece of that. Because even though I say like, I believe I'm completely recovered and I'm going to claim that I still have negative thoughts about my body or about the way that I look. Um, what's different now is that how I deal with those. Um, and there's been times where I was like, well, technically, am I still fully recovered? If I have a negative thought, like, can I still say that about myself? And I feel like the answer is yes, because I, f- I feel like there's something powerful in claiming complete recovery and gives me a position of power and strength and confidence over Mm. my thoughts Mm -hmm. 
Whereas if I say like, oh, I'm still struggling and occasionally I have, you know, you know, negative thoughts. It just, to me, that doesn't resonate with confidence. And so that's why I claim that, you know, I'm going to own that. I'm going to claim full recovery because that's where I believe I belong. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. And uh, so I think, especially with with pregnancy, um, it was definitely a process of finding a balance between, okay, so I I feel like the weight gain just kind of happened naturally and was sort of not an issue. It was more so postpartum where it's Mm -hmm. like, okay, I had this baby. I would like to fit back into the jeans that I was wearing before I had this baby. How much am I going to, how much power am I going to give to that, that desire? And how much importance is it going to have in my day-to-day thinking in my life? So it definitely was, I feel like a tricky thing to navigate. Mm -hmm. And I think my approach was just always being open, having an open conversation with my husband, you know, saying like, I think that I want to try to lose this baby weight and, but I don't want to slip back into old patterns. Can you just keep an eye on me? Can you talk to me about this on a regular basis? Can this be part of our conversation? Um, and then also, so obviously, so being open about it and kind of putting it out there in the light, um, is helpful because Mm -hmm. then it, you know, it's less likely to develop it back into or slip back into the disordered habits. Um, and I think even, I mean, I was kind of having this same sort of struggle or just thinking through this process a few months ago because I was coming up on the national championships and I was thinking like, I really want to be fueling my body and eating in the best way possible so that I'm really like ready for this. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I don't want to become so obsessive about my diet Mm -hmm. that it, it goes back into restriction. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it just was okay. Asking like, what's the intention? You know, how am I going to carry out that intention with my behavior and with my thinking? Um, and just, um, again, being just really open, um, and honest about that. And I mean, that's kind of how I use social media as a way to like bring things into the light is sharing thoughts like that and saying, Hey, this is, this is how I'm feeling. I'm sharing it with you all because exposing it, it aids, you know, aids in kind of cutting down the power of it. And mm-hmm. so, so I think all of those things, just being really, really honest with yourself yep. about the intention and then just also being really open. Okay, great. Thank you so much. And just to wrap up with this conversation, what would you like to tell any listeners who feel like they've been hit pretty hard by this episode that, you know, it's really made them see, okay, I I really need to go see someone. I need to admit this to myself. What would you like to tell them if you could sit down right next to them right now? What would your, what would your advice be? Mm. I think the most important thing is to just begin to articulate how you're feeling um, and to give a voice to the side of you that wants to get better because the internal voices of the disorder are loud and they're pretty ingrained into your thought patterns. And so if you can begin to talk about it, give voice to it, share with a supportive friend or family member, and then 
then seek the help of a professional would be sort of the first, I would say the first two steps is like, just start talking about it with people who, you know, will love and support you and then seek the help of a professional. Okay. All right. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah. All right. Just to talk a little bit more about you, um, you know, I've mentioned the Rise Run Retreat, so maybe you could mention that and then maybe tell us uh, you have products on your website, Run Far Girl, well, Run Far Gear is what it's called. Um, maybe you could tell people a bit about that and then a bit about your new um, Instagram live TV show showing up. Just tell us a bit about all the things you have going right now when it comes to kind of what you're doing to help others um, in our running world. Yeah. Um, so Rise Run Retreat is, um, we have two events this year, um, a spring retreat, which is coming up at the end of this month, or actually in a few weeks, it's May 16th through the 19th, and that's in Woodstock, Vermont. And then, um, and unfortunately, the registration for that is closed. But we do have a running camp that is taking place in Moultonboro, New Hampshire on Lake Winnipesaukee. And that is going to be um, the first weekend in September. And I team up with um, Mary Johnson from Lift Run Perform and her staff to put that on. And so that's a three-day women's running retreat slash camp. So that's a lot of fun. And people can get information on those, both those events at riserunretreat.com. Okay. And then my personal website is runfargirl.com. And there's tons of blog posts up there since I've been blogging for quite a while. <laughs> and then I also have a few products. Um, one of the mantras that I adopted when I was running, coming back um, to returning to running after my second pregnancy was embrace the hill. So the idea behind that is to um, just lean into and embrace the difficult, um, the difficulties in life because they make you stronger. Mm-hmm. So I have t-shirts and trucker hats and those are um, up on my website as well. And I just want to pause you. I do have one of those tanks and I absolutely love it. So I would yeah. encourage everyone listening to go, go get yourself one. Anyway, keep going. Yeah, and they <laughs> and 10% of the proceeds um, go to the Children's Hospital at Dartmouth Hitchcock. Um, my middle son uh, was born with a congenital birth defect and so had several surgeries there. So I try to give back to the Children's Hospital um, and do that through uh, the sales of the apparel. So, um, and then, yeah, so I recently started an Instagram live show called Showing Up, um, where I share the courageous conversations of women who are following their hearts. So um, that's women who have either started their own business or maybe they've started um, a blog or they're, you know, a teacher, a writer, people who are kind of showing up in life and taking steps to to like we were talking about in the beginning, um, follow what brings them joy and and make, you know, turn an idea into reality. So that's every Wednesday at noon Eastern time. And my Instagram handle is runfargirl. Mm-hmm. And you can watch it um, afterwards if you, if you do miss it. So that's if that true. timing doesn't work for you, if you're in a different country, then you can also watch it afterwards. All right. We are just going to take a moment to thank our sponsors and we'll be back with the Running For Real 4. Warmer weather is starting to get us and even though we've forgotten all about those bad sides of it in our daydreams about the summer, the sweat pours down your face in those first few months, well it does for me. 
It used to drive me absolutely crazy when I would get a bead of sweat inside my earbuds. How I got in there, I don't know. And it would block the sound. I would try and get the the sweat out, just the one drop. I would try and dry it, but you know, you're already soaked and it just didn't work. But with aftershocks, you don't have to worry about that because they sit outside your ear and conduct the sound through bone conduction technology. Sounds intense, but it's ideal, especially this time of year when you're still adjusting to running outside without 3 million layers on. That being said, these can handle any weather conditions. Aftershocks have a wide dynamic sound range, deep bass and dual noise cancelling mics. You can hear your music or podcast clearly and even have phone calls. I've tested that out too and left them on for a while while I pretty much forgot that they were there. You can get $50 off Trex Air or Trex Titanium Endurance Bundle at tina.aftershocks.com. That's T-I-N-A dot A-F-T-E-R-S-H-O-K-Z dot com. I absolutely love mine and I have a feeling you will too. Can I just take a moment to send out the biggest thank you to both Generation You Can and Aftershocks for joining me in the Boston Marathon. You've heard me talk about Generation You Can before and how I use it every single day to fuel my runs through mostly the peanut butter chocolate bars and also have the vanilla protein after my runs. I think you believe me by now when I tell you I love something that I mean it. But I get it. When I said as an elite that I took UCAN during a race or used it, you know, it's easy to think, yeah, yeah, whatever. Nice for you being handed a bottle. But this time in Boston, I had to carry whatever I wanted. So I did. I made a very concentrated bottle of UCAN, two scoops in 10 ounces of water, and I carried it, taking a big swig every four miles in addition to taking water from cups every other station. I also had a chocolate peanut butter bar before the race and another scoop in water before the race as well. So I hope that shows that I can walk the walk as well as talking the talk about UCAN. I trust them and I will continue to do the same thing in every marathon I do from now. I do feel very good about my fueling and I didn't have any crashes, just kind of a slow burning that seemed to be coming to get me more with every mile. But that's what you get when you run 30 seconds per mile faster than you intend the first six to eight miles. You can get 15% off Generation You Can by visiting generationyoucan.com and using code Tina Muir. Thank you, Generation You Can, for supporting me, not just through fuel in this race, but also as a genuine, just fantastic brand. They're just such good people, and I'm so excited to promote brands like that. So thank you. All right, Sarah, four more questions for you, starting with one piece of advice you'd like to give the listeners for life. Ooh, for life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think the theme that that keeps coming um, back to me or that, you know, that I keep learning is to believe you belong and pursue that relentlessly. I love that. So wherever it is that you believe that you can be or believe you belong to just go after that with everything that you've got. Okay, great. Thank you so much. One person to follow on social media and why? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I would say that right now I'm just loving Stephanie Bruce. I think she's great. So she's a huge inspiration to me. So I think people should follow her. Okay, great. How do you want to be remembered on this show? Um, I have this sort of like saying that, um, I want to be tenacious and gracious in all things. I think that's definitely you. Mm -hmm. So 
when I'm out running, like I feel like I want to be the most tenacious I can possibly be. And then um, I also want to be gracious. And yeah, love that. And finally, what do you tell yourself on the start line of a race or um, before you're going to go do something really scary? Ooh, there are two things that I tell myself. So one is I'm strong, I'm fast, I'm confident. Mm -hmm. And then the other one is I believe I belong. I absolutely love that. That's so good. And I think people can easily take that into, into their own races or into their own presentations or anything else to, to, you know, put it into practice. All right. So Sarah, where can people find out more about you? We mentioned your website, runfargirl.com. Where else can people, oh, I think we did say your Instagram handle as well. Um, so mm -hmm. at runfargirl, but anywhere else you would like to send people? Yeah. I'm also on Twitter and Facebook as well. Okay. Um, but all of those links are easily accessible through, um, runfargirl.com. So. Okay. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for just being a wonderful role model for so many reasons, but also thank you to you for, you know, coming on here and, and being willing to talk about a topic that is, you know, definitely not discussed enough, but definitely a difficult one to kind of not make things worse essentially so thank you for being that person and for being tenacious and gracious you absolutely were that and uh thank you for all that you do uh really appreciate you uh well thank you so much for having me on and thank you for all your kind words i just really appreciate it my friends if you have a minute and you could leave a review on your favorite podcast player apple Podcasts, aka itunes stitcher overcast pocket class spotify or whatever else podcast player you use to listen to this podcast. Or if you would subscribe to this podcast, you will help me get out in front of new runners to make our tribe even bigger and even better. It might not seem like you as one person can make a difference, but really it helps a lot. And it shows me you appreciate the hard work I put in for those. Thank you so much. Now, I know that was a very sensitive episode and one that needs to be treated with caution, but we do need to hear that there can be another side. There can be a happy and there can be a believing in yourself to get there. You just need to know you want it and you need to be prepared to do the work to get there. Just like anything we want in life, you have to be prepared to fight. I hope this episode was helpful with Sarah Canny. And if you think a friend or a loved one might need to check it out, it might be worth sending it on. Obviously, with a warning to them, if you think that they need it, that this episode could, you know, bring about some feelings. So you might want to listen on their own or listen with you or something like that. You can find links to everything we talked about in the show notes at tinamuir.com forward slash episode 114. Next week, we will be talking to my good friend, Brad Beer. You may remember him from the Run to the Top podcast. Brad is one of my absolute favorite physiotherapists in the world. He is a wonderful expert with such good advice and an even better human being. Be sure to subscribe to the Running Thrill podcast and I will get that one right to you on Friday. Until then, have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Running For Real podcast. Be sure to check out tinamuir.com for show notes and even more helpful running information.